Listener Production. Maria Thetil has always felt like an outsider looking in, despite being very much immersed in the world of modelling, television and influencing. Maria is a queer South Asian woman, the daughter of migrant parents and a former Miss Universe Australia who stands a petite five foot three in a world of six foot something beauty pageant contestants. As a now very public figure, Maria is deconstructing stereotypes and breaking new ground, releasing her memoir Unbound earlier this year and coming out to an enormous reality TV audience on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Up next, Helen Smith joins me for The Weekend List, where we recommend what to watch, see, eat, do and listen to this weekend. But first, here is my conversation with Maria Thetil. Hey, Maria Thetil, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Oh, gee, thanks for having me. Thanks for spending your weekend with me. Look, I am thrilled. We've been wanting to have you for quite a while, so I'm delighted that you're our guest today. And I have a whole bunch of questions. Let's start at the very beginning. I want to know what you were like as a kid. Tell me everything. Ooh, okay, we're going right back to the start. Okay, so I was born in Melbourne and I was born to Indian immigrants and Before I went to school, I was a very, very creative kid. Like I'm talking, I wanted to be a designer one day. I wanted to draw. I wanted to sing. I wanted to act. And I was very bubbly, very loud when I was around my mum, dad, and my brother. And then when I'd get into social settings, that's when I'd sort of retreat a little bit and I'd get very, very shy. So I grew up in a massive family. I had about eight or nine other cousins and you know, some of them were more dominating personalities. And from a young age, I used to learn to sort of shrink myself because I'd get very shy. And that sort of social anxiety followed me through, I would say, my childhood and teens and early 20s. But when I was super young, I think my parents, they didn't have any preconceived ideas of who I was going to be, but they were very good at nurturing a sense of confidence in you're valued, you're special, you know, you're here to do something, you're smart. And they sort of breathed that kind of love, faith and confidence into me and just built the world of me. And I knew it. And I would say my own self-concept, that was sort of an anchor falling back on their words when maybe the world got a little bit loud and I started to internalize other sensibilities. But mum and dad, they just thought I was capable That's what they thought I was. They thought I was capable. Seriously, if my kid grows up and describes my parenting as anything like that one day, I will be absolutely thrilled. Now, I know you grew up in a pretty conservative religious household as well. How did you go about fitting in in Australian schools with that religious South Asian background? You didn't didn't do anything. (laughs) Point blank, I didn't. Didn't do it at all. I just didn't fit in didn't fit in, just sort of, you know, excluded myself. And there was a bit of that. So I definitely didn't feel like I fit in because, and I couldn't, I didn't have the language to articulate this. And I think a lot of third culture kids who grew up in the nineties and early two thousands, they didn't have the language to articulate this Mm. because you didn't really see many people in media or mainstream spheres talking about this sort of thing. Yeah. So it's like, oh, maybe this is just an experience unique to me. And I just it's me. The problem is me. I don't belong. I don't fit in. But it is part of a bigger identity crisis. And so I'd go home and the food we ate and the music we listened to, the music, the way my parents dressed and what they believed, 
it was very, very, very different to what I would see at school with, you know, my peers who were largely, you know, white and they were allowed a lot more freedom. Their parents were a lot more relaxed. Kids would swear at school. And like, I just came from this really conservative family where I had to sort of act a certain way, be a certain way. I had certain values and I didn't necessarily feel like I fit in with the kids at school, but I also didn't want to fit in with what I was growing with up with at home because I felt like mm. that was costing me um, the ability to assimilate with my peers. And so it felt like I don't want to be Indian because that's costing me feeling like I'm Australian, you know? And so I sort of just hung out with my cousins in school. I didn't really mix with anybody else. I struggled to fit in with other people. And when I went to high school and I started to build friendship groups there, I really just chameleoned myself to fit in those spaces. And I pretended to be something I wasn't Mm. because I thought what I was, um, was an anchor that wasn't allowing me to assimilate the people around me. I'm interested in the language you used right at the start of your answer. You didn't say I was excluded. You said I excluded myself. It sounds like it was a deliberate choice to keep yourself at arm's length from the other kids at school perhaps, but also at arm's length from family. Is that fair? Yeah, that is very fair. And the the exclusion with those different groups happened at different time periods. So when I was a kid, I'm talking like primary school aged. I have this distinct memory of my one friend at school was the second cousin of one of my first cousins, so family circles, right? And we just spent every day together from prep to grade six. And I remember being in grade one and she said, Maria, some of the girls want to play with us. Do you want to go? And I was so scared and timid. I distinctly remember saying, no, like, it's okay. Like if you want to go play with them, I'm going to stay here. I didn't want to go play with these other girls and they were all European. And I just had this overwhelming sense of, I don't belong. And I also think it was my social anxiety as well. I was a very anxious kid and very conscious of not fitting in. And I remember being very young and racial microaggressions and racial slurs being, you know, thrown around like it was nothing. Mm. And me not even realizing what it was, but just going, oh my God, I'm different and I need to mute myself. So I excluded myself from other kids because I just wanted to avoid those interactions. I just stayed with family. But then when I got into high school, I chose to exclude myself from family. And that's where I started to form these ideas around, okay, what's Australian? And I thought I had to shed my entire ethnicity to be Australian. And that's when I stopped talking to the cousins that I clung to as a safety blanket in primary school I didn't want anything to do with them in high school. And it's heartbreaking to think that a lot of us grew up thinking in order to belong, we needed to give up who we are. And so I gave up those relationships to forge relationships with kids in school. But ironically, I wasn't showing up as myself. I hid everything about my family. I never invited people over. I used to sort of make racist jokes about myself because I thought, well, that's how I'm going to fit in with them and sort of by acceptance, I'm going to see what they see in me. Um, So that exclusion was deliberate and it all comes down to trying to understand what my identity was. How do I belong? What do I need to do to fit in? And not once did it occur to me till my mid-20s that what I need to do to fit in is recognize that the middle ground being Australian, being Indian, being who I am, that's also home. Mm. That's okay. Not once did that occur to me. Do you think that your parents and you have handled the experience of microaggressions and racism 
differently from a generational perspective. Sorry, perhaps I'm not explaining myself well. I think you are part of a generation that certainly as an adult has had the language, has had the tools to be able to describe your experience of racism and to be able to speak to the buildup of microaggressions. Mm -hmm. But I feel like the generation before, those who grew up in the 70s or the 60s, don't necessarily have that language and, and as a result have reacted differently to the experience of racism. Do you find common ground with your parents now? I think my parents, when it comes to talking about racism, like a lot of what they experienced when they first immigrated here, they were othered. And I, my mom, like I have memories of her, you know, when I was a kid and hearing some of the things she would talk about in terms of how she was treated at work and how some of her cultural differences and her values were not accepted mm. and she was not understood. There weren't even HR practices in place to protect that. I don't even think they realize that that is structural racism in place and, you know, structural and it's systemic and it's so deeply ingrained. But the language that they had and the way that they would sort of talk to me about it when I was growing up was they would just say, be proud in your roots, be proud as an Indian girl, um, celebrate your differences. But they never really had language to articulate those like more subtle microaggressions. And so as I've gotten older, my brother and I've gotten older and we're very, very vocal publicly about this sort of thing, they've done a lot of unlearning and learning. And now they have this language and we speak about it, but absolutely not growing up. They didn't even, yeah, they didn't have language to articulate it. You've done a whole bunch of things in your life already, but you first came onto the national scene in Australia as Miss Universe. When did you first know that you were beautiful? Hmm. That's a really interesting question. (laughs) Do you know, it's, it's funny. I, when you look at when you look at me, you will see you know tan skin, big lips, or whatever these features are. It is so interesting that when I was growing up, those very features are things that I was ashamed of. I used to mm. use skin bleaching creams. Mm. I used to put foundation on my lips to try and make them look smaller when I was growing up because that was different about me, and I wanted to look like my white friends who had smaller lips. Yeah, and. It's funny that in, you know, somewhere in the 2000s, say with the Kardashians when they came into, you know, public consciousness and and you see figures like that changing beauty standards, suddenly it was cool to be curvy and then tanning, you know, that became cool. Lip fillers with Kylie Jenner, all of a sudden that was a trend. It was really interesting watching things that are common to people from ethnic groups like mine suddenly become popular when they've been commodified and it's seen on white bodies. But when it's been on us, it's never been a thing. It's even trends like, you know, on TikTok recently, the clean girl trend. Mm. And the trend is you slick back and oil your hair and you just have very minimal makeup, just a bit of lip gloss, mascara. That's how our mums dressed in India. We'd put our Dabaramla hair oil on and we were called dirty for having oily hair. Yeah. And so there was this really big part of that revolution where, yes, all of a sudden you're considered conventionally beautiful, but I didn't accept it as being beautiful because it was only made beautiful when it was on white bodies. And so the point that I started to realize I was beautiful was not when my features became a beauty standard, but when I realized beauty standards are bullshit. Hmm. And it was when I realized that I, if I'm striving to be whatever's in, it's constantly going to change. It's cyclical. And I can tell you now we're seeing this horrific resurgence of thinness being a trend when before it was BBLs and curvy bodies, like it's constantly changing. And so I think it started to happen for me around 
25 or 26 and I was working in corporate HR. I just graduated from my degrees and I had a small social media presence and I would just share what makeup I was using because while I was doing my master's, I was doing a makeup certification just for fun. I just wanted to learn. And I would share things like, this is the foundation I'm wearing. This is the lipstick I'm wearing, but also my thoughts on a lack of diversity in the Australian beauty landscape. And suddenly people of color in Australia started to follow me and it built a little community. And I started to realize I was beautiful when I was just sharing things about me like dark pigmentation around my eyes or whatever it was, not hiding it, sharing it and realizing that other people connected to it too. And the problem has never been with me or how I looked or what's trending, but it has been the industry. It has been racist messaging. It has been exclusive messaging. And so that switch didn't happen when my look became on trend. It happened when I realized that the trends are bullshit that need to be abolished. That whole pageant world has historically not been a comfortable place for women of colour. And I think uh, to an extent, not a comfortable place for anyone who feels in inverted commas different in some way. You're a queer woman. How have you processed that in a world that tells you anything but the norm is not okay? Oh yeah. When I started competing, even just for Miss Universe Australia, the amount of racism that opened up on a national and international scale, where very easily people just discussed my suitability and said, but she's not even Australian. Wow. She's, and that's just because of how I looked. I cannot tell you how often I heard that on a global scale. And also the fact that I'm five foot three, where people said, she's not Miss Universe material. She's not model material. She doesn't look like them. So I was aware that I was different. Yeah. And I was closeted. I was closeted at the time of competing. However, it was really important to me to take something that does have patriarchal roots, um, that is typically pretty exclusive and to show people, well, I'm going to actually be the change that I want to see. And so by me just showing up and being on that stage as only the third woman of color in 69 years, as five foot three, it changed a lot. You know, a lot of countries removed their height requirement. It changed discourse on what is Australian. And now I've got this media career where I'm openly able to have conversations in the mainstream where you don't see people like us doing it, you know, hosting on and guesting and commentating on primetime television shows and, and having these conversations. So I think I proved my point that differences can be something that you use um, as your power if you reclaim them. Because for a while I thought, should I not acknowledge the, the height thing? Should I not talk about the fact that people are saying this about me while I'm competing? Should I play it safe? And I'm like, well, wait a minute. I The whole reason I entered this sphere is not to play it safe, but I did it with intention. I wanted to use Miss Universe as a vehicle to have these conversations, to forge the media career. So I thought, stuff it, I'm just going to talk about it. And Every single person who hurled any kind of racial abuse at me or discriminatory hate or bullying, I ended up building their words into my campaign. And they were the reason that people listened to me. And all of a sudden, my campaign stood out from the 80 other women, 80-something other women who competed that year. It's because I didn't shy away and play it safe that, you know, it got attention and it, it sparked those conversations. So it is difficult. And even coming out was hard because... I don't think there's an openly queer Miss Universe Australia. And I'm very, you know, I love talking about sex, very sex positive, And it's not what you would expect from a traditional beauty queen, but I never was and I never wanted to be. And I think I was pretty open about the fact that if you pick me, it's going to shake things up. 
So I think I've just been true to myself and it's shocked a few people along the way, but that's what you have to do if you're going to change something. You're going to disrupt people. And playing that disruptor role and being truthful about who you are is such an admirable thing to do, but that does not make it an easy thing to do. I imagine you've copped a bit of pushback. How do you handle that? Oh, I still get it. And I get it, you know, publicly and I get it um, even from extended family where I'm very, very vocal and I've shared my own abortion story. I will talk about queer rights, transgender rights. I do it on morning television. Um, just last week, I got messages from people who have said, I used to admire you, but you always talk about sexuality. It's always pushing the queer agenda. Um, or I've had family who have said, I don't want to read her book yeah. because she's talked about the LGBTQ, this, that. Like I literally have people saying this to me because they speak up for what matters to me. And it's not easy, but I didn't come here to be a people pleaser. And the thing is, it's so interesting that I get this pushback where I've worked to be a national commentator, for example. And all I do is I comment on the topics that they give me. They ask me things. And if it's going to be sex, if it's going to be transgender rights or queer kids, I'm going to say what I believed. I didn't work this hard to sit on the fence when you ask me what I think. And it's just really interesting to see the response to a queer woman of color who was given these platforms and speaks her mind. And I think that discomfort comes from not seeing many people like that doing it. You know, we we have a lot of public figures in the media who are white, mm. who are heterosexual, they're allowed to have these opinions. They're allowed to be messy and they're allowed to say uncomfortable things, but then also be funny and charismatic and whatnot. And I've noticed, you know, from even our own community, people of color, where they don't like to see me speaking about these topics. But that's why I got into this career. These are the things that I needed to hear growing up. I needed to hear somebody speaking about and speaking up for kids who are queer, who grow up in religious families and kids who are unsafe. And for anyone that doubts the importance of it, look at what's happening with legislation in America and how that conversation is trickling down here in terms of, you know, LGBTQIA plus rights. It's literally in question right now. They're literally being stripped back um, around the world. And so it's like, what do you expect from someone who from the start has said that they're going to be open? Mm. So I know that this pushback, I'm ready for the pushback, but I didn't come this far to buckle. So, you know, it's hard when it comes from your own extended family, but my parents are our biggest allies and they speak up for us and they're the reason I can do it. My mum and dad will say, you know, they will stand up to anybody who has something to say about my brother and I. And so when you've got parents like that, I don't care about anything else. I'm glad you mentioned your brother because... I don't know if you've noticed, you start to switch into us language instead of me language when you're talking about (laughs) him, which is so, so gorgeous. You clearly have a really special relationship with your brother. Oh my God, he's my best friend. Tell me about him. He's my best friend in the whole world. Um, We always say we're sister, sister. (laughs) And like I, from, you know, a very young age was very like fierce big sister when it came to Dom. And he came out 10 years before me and he had a very different experience. Um, Our parents back then were not as open-minded, not as inclusive. Dom, and I will let him share his story one day, but he left home for that reason for a period and was not in safe situations. And I could have very easily lost my brother. Um, 
And so I don't take for granted at all the growth that our family have, has had and what it has taken for Dominic to come back home and get himself on track and to be this strong, incredibly proud, incredibly true to himself, like queer person. He dresses how he wants to dress. He says what he, wanted, he wants to say. And I'll always be his biggest protector and his best friend. And he's just been that for me too. It's so weird because I think when it comes to career and life, I take him under my wing. But when it comes to relationships and some of my personal choices, I'm like, shit, I'm making some bad decisions. Like I need to talk to you. I need your advice. And so we've grown up to be the, you know, our skills and, and what we offer each other. It's incredibly complimentary, but we're in this together and we have some really big ambitions. Like we are going to write a show together. Um, we're going to do so much and our parents just love and back us. So yeah, I guess I don't even realize I'm switching that language, but so my, everything that I do is for my family, you know, it's for my brother, it's for my mom and dad. And so I guess that comes through in my language. <laughs> it's nice. I know you attended your first Mardi Gras together. Yeah. Tell me about that. Oh, uh, it was amazing. It was such a family affair. It was oh, Dom, his partner. Yeah, it was a family affair. Dom, his partner, me, my partner, my assistant. We managed to get her on the float. <laughs> so we were riding through the crowds of Sydney, like hundreds of thousands of people. And we were on there just celebrating and, and wearing what we wanted to wear. And yes, there was an incident that happened, but I don't want to take away what it meant for us to, to get there to that point and our parents to be saying, you guys look amazing, have a great time. And we're just celebrating and what we stand for. Um, it was truly one of the most special experiences and to have Ole back us. Like Ole is one of my, they're my longest partner and they have gotten behind my mum and dad, my brother, our story. Like it's just meaningful. Um, we did have an incident of homophobia where my brother and his partner, after splitting up with Georgie and I and going our separate ways, Dom and Ben had a group of guys um, spit at them and start gagging and just be very openly homophobic and made them feel very unsafe. And what was disheartening was uh, all the people who were witnessing it around, no one said anything. Mm. And to be fair, like I, I was angry about it for a while because Dom went into a bit of a post-traumatic like stress response. He, for a couple of weeks, literally didn't want to leave the house he started to question how we dressed and my, my mom and dad would call me worried every day and say, Dominic's just like locked up in his room. He doesn't want to go anywhere. We, they just wanted to protect their kid, right? He's since come out of it and realized like situations like that, I've healed from it and now it's given me a bigger why for the work that we do. But it is really disappointing that that happened, particularly around World Pride. I think there was a lot of anti-LGBTQ plus sentiment Um but I also am part of um, a campaign against street harassment with L'Oreal Paris. And one of the things that has come through is very often people don't speak up because they don't know how. Mm. And so I'm trying to be gracious in that way and thinking maybe people didn't want to compromise their safety. They didn't know how and things like that. But that's why knowing how is important because what happens is it's not perpetrators who walk away feeling guilty for what they've done or reflecting on, I need to be better. It's always the victim who comes away thinking, I need to shrink myself. And that's what happened with Dom and Ben at a time where we were meant to be celebrating progress. So it was a bit of a stark contrast, but it's just fueled us even more for the work that we do. I'm so sorry to hear that happen to your brother and his partner. And I'm also delighted to hear that you're able to still hold the celebration of that night in your head. And 
on its own because what an incredible moment to be part of for your family as well as for Australia to host World Pride here in Sydney. What is next for you? Uh, You say you're writing a show. Yes. Can you tell us more? What else is happening? You're you're so young. There's so many things that are possible ahead of you. Um, yeah, there's there's a bit happening at the moment. I'm very lucky that a lot of the, the partners that I have, like I get to work on a lot of social causes that I believe in. So, you know, there's a bit of that. Ovarian cancer, um, we're working on that with witchery at the moment, which is awesome. My grandma, her mother passed away due to ovarian cancer and my grandma passed away due to gynecological cancer. So that's, you know, something I'm very passionate about. But outside of that, in terms of creative projects, some really fun stuff coming up. So there are two shows that will come out within the next year. One is making my acting debut and the other is um, a pretty, pretty big show that I'm very thrilled to be a part of. So I'm very lucky I get to do work that is creative and fun and true to me, but I also have a podcast that will be coming out Um, I'm working on a fashion collaboration at the moment and it'll be inclusive and incredible and just big. And then my brother and I are going to start working on a show. I won't say too much on it, but it is just going to take a lot of what we've lived through and look at it through a really funny lens and watch that space with that. Um, So there's heaps coming up and all of it is fun and it's creative and some of it draws on our experiences some of it's about social causes I care about and some of it's just creative and industries are only once dreamed of but all of it is purposeful and all of it I know is going to impact people who haven't seen themselves in these spaces doing it all and it's like if you want to do it all why not so I feel very privileged to get to do that and I'm excited about it all. Maria, I'm not quite sure when you're going to sleep, but that sounds (laughs) thrilling. Thank you so much for being my guest on The Weekend Briefing. And thank you for being that representation. I know that as a fellow South Asian kid, I would have loved to have someone like you to look up to when I was at school. And I know that you're doing that for a whole bunch of South Asian kids now who live in Australia and who will be just so impressed and coming along for the ride with you. Well, Jamila, I'm just going to say right back at you because I've followed your work for a while and I think it was an International Women's Day event a couple of years ago. I can't remember where we met. Yeah, yeah, And I, I think I was in corporate then or like, I don't know what it was, but I came up to you and I told you what your work meant to me. And so to, it's a little bit full circle having this chat with you because everything you just said, it's a, it's a privilege to hear that from you. And I just echo it right back. So thank you for inspiring me very much so along my own journey and getting to this point. It, it makes all the difference. Your kid is very lucky to have you. Thank you so much, Maria. That was awesome. That's it for my chat with Maria Thetil. Maria's first book, Unbound, is available now at any good bookstore and probably some of the bad ones too, or you can grab a copy online via Booktopia. Don't go away. Helen Smith is joining me soon for The Weekend List. It is weekend list time. Helen Smith is here. And as usual, folks, she's been living her absolute best life uh, solely for the purpose, not for herself, but for all of you. So she can discover excellent things to recommend. What have you got this week? So the first thing I have is called The Clearing. It's on Disney+. Plus. I've nailed it down. I only have two streaming services at the moment. So my options are slim. I'm trying to cut back. Uh, But this is based loosely off the Australian cult called The Family, where all oh, of the yeah. kids, yeah, they all had that bleached blonde white hair that wasn't natural. They they bleached the, the children's hair. It's 
a really like it's all fictionalized, but it is so fascinating. And if you're if you're obsessed with cults, this is for you. It's very great. Uh, it also stars Teresa Palmer, who's a fellow Adelaidean. So I'm also just fangirl a lot. And it's just really well done. It's for an Aussie, it's all Aussie cast as well. So it's just like, mm, it's good. It's really good. It's a bit ooh, like creepy, but it's great. It's great. I love that recommendation. Also because there are a weird number of people who are very into cults, like it, not not in them, but like interested in them. I have so many friends and family who genuinely like that's a, that's a subject that they seek out. Great recommendation. Folks, I am recommending an article actually. It's from Glamour, um, which is an American um, magazine and it's also got a digital platform, obviously. And the article is called How Can You Overcome Imposter Syndrome? You Don't. And it's by Reshma Sojani and I really, really love this because Reshna basically says that imposter syndrome is not a thing. Firstly, it's definitely not a syndrome, but she goes back and looks at historically where the idea came from and how it was come up with. And she argues that it's another way that we've created to make women especially, but I I think minorities and people who face disadvantage feel like they don't belong. Um, And to uh, then go to imposter syndrome is sort of like a catch-all for why they feel that way. When really the reason they feel like they don't belong is they're made to feel that way by the people who've owned those spaces or, or workplaces or created the norms in the first place. I'm talking in a bit of circles, but it's really, really good, folks. And Reshma, who is the woman who writes it, is the founder of Girls Who Code mm-hmm. and uh, is an incredible advocate and fighter for equality in a whole different uh, range of areas. And this piece, I want to say it blew my mind. That's a little bit too cliched for me, but it totally challenged a lot of what I thought about the idea of imposter syndrome and the way that a lot of people feel like they didn't earn the position they have or they don't belong where they are in in their careers. It's a really, really good read. If you Google how can you overcome imposter syndrome glamour, it'll come up straight away. I love that one. I love Girls Who Code. That is really cool. So my next recommendation is a new podcast, actually, that is in-house here at Listener, and it's called Black Matters. And it's just, I think it's a really great podcast in a market that I think we need more podcasts like this. It is an exploration of First Nation issues. Um, and, and it's just talking about them in a conversational way, why they mattered. It's hosted by Teela Reid and also MC. Oh, Teela Reid is one of the most fantastic people in terms, like, in terms of like voices on the Australian landscape at the moment, like 10 out of 10. She's very good, everyone. Mm, like, oh, you just, I could listen to her all day. She, it's just great. And yeah, it's just addressing all the issues, sometimes icky issues that, you know, you're not sure how to approach as, you know, a, a, a white person. And it's a really well done podcast. And if you can listen to it, listen to it. The conversations are amazing and very, very much needed. I'm going to second that recommendation and I'm going to come at you folks with a very different one. Uh, I'm coming back to the television set, folks. This is a Netflix recommendation. Um, It's a film called Wonder and it came out um, last year. I'm a little bit late to the party, but I just didn't hear as much about this as I feel like I should have. It stars Florence Pugh, who is 
honestly so mm. good in this very eerie drama. So uh, Pugh plays a nurse who is investigating an alleged miracle in Ireland and the miracle, so-called miracle is that she goes to watch this young woman who apparently is surviving without food and has done so for many months and and the the local township believe that there are religious reasons that she's been touched by god that it's a miracle it's a period sort of thriller i suppose because it's it's not so much a period drama it's it's got a really thrilling spooky kind of element to it i really had that 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 like tingly skin all over kind of feel the whole time it can feel like a bit of a strange setup in the first place. It takes you a moment to kind of go, okay, I think I'm in. I think I understand where we're going. But the work by Pew in particular, playing this English nurse that's sent out into remote Ireland in the in the middle of the 1800s, honestly, she is an absolute superstar. You see why she is being acclaimed all over the place. And it's inspired by things that really happened. In the Victorian era, there were these uh, using um, quotation marks, folks, fasting girls who were young women who allegedly found a way to be able to not eat for very long periods of time and survive. And there was a supposedly a, a religious element to it. I just loved it. I loved watching it. I found it completely captivating and would not even even imagined pausing despite the fact it was a movie. And I never watch things that are movie length. I just binge hours and hours of 40-minute television shows back-to-back. That's it for the weekend list for this week, everyone. Thank you so much for giving us your company. We really do appreciate it. If you want to make sure that you never miss an episode of The Briefing, we think the best thing for you to do is to download the listener app. It's free. You can just get it there in the app store. And you can, once you're in there, subscribe to or follow The Briefing so that you never miss an episode. You can do the same thing in all of the podcasting apps. You can catch us anywhere. While you're at it, if you want to leave us a lovely rating and a lovely review, we would really appreciate it. We will be back bright and early next Monday where Tom Tilly and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.